I invite you, if you'd like to, to turn to Psalm 2. We're going to read Psalm 2 and also take a look at uh, this passage this morning. Before we uh, read it and look at it, uh, I invite you to pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for this psalm and for your word, and we ask that as we spend some time looking at it and trying to discern uh, what it's about and what it has to do with us and with your glory and with Jesus Christ, we pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit into a deeper truth of your word and, and uh, also into obedience in our lives where we are currently out of whack. So we pray that you'll accomplish these things uh, by your Holy Spirit and for your glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Psalm 2 at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone uh, listening uh, this morning, this psalm, if you want to do just a quick reference, if you have a center column reference or whatever, you can Notice all throughout the New Testament, it's a very uh, highly quoted, often quoted uh, psalm, and it's uh, uh, worth studying and, and, uh, and looking at how it is used um, throughout the New Testament. Uh, the psalm is an interesting one, as then it does not speak uh, directly about David or any other king uh, in David's era. Uh, so when we read this, if we're thinking, well, this first has to do with King David, and then secondly, with Christ, we will probably be surprised and our minds might start going up in smoke a little bit thinking, what is the primary reference here? What is the historical reference of Psalm 2? Because the language here is incredibly exalted regarding the son, this anointed one, this Mashiach in the Hebrew, or uh, this Christos, if you were to translate that Hebrew word to Greek, this Christ figure. Uh, for example, he's called uh, his anointed, my king, you are my son. He possesses the nations and the earth. He will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like clay. Everyone who doesn't kiss him will perish. And everyone who does kiss him is safe and secure. This is, an ordinary, this is no mere man. This can't be a mere human being. Clearly this uh, referent, the first referent of this psalm, I would argue, has to do with Jesus Christ himself, uh, who said all the psalms speak of me. And so as we walk through this, uh, we're going to see uh, the direct fulfillment of this and also consider what Psalm 2, uh, how it comes to bear upon uh, our lives. And the psalm actually breaks down really easily. It's a, a preacher's dream to 
uh, come up with an outline. Verses 1 through 3 are a section, 4 through 9 are a section, and then 10 through 12 are a section. And uh, I'm going to look at section 1 under the heading, The Nations Rage Against the King. Secondly, we're going to notice the calm, steady reign of the king. And then finally, the wrath and refuge of the king. So we're going to look at those three things. I draw your attention to verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in these verses, we see the hatred that comes against uh, the king. Now, what is that issue in the psalm is the reign of the king over the people and no one likes it. The nations hate it. The nations do not want God and his anointed to reign over them. They do not want Jesus to reign over them, which is where the language burst their bonds and cast away their cords. Uh, bonds and cords control an individual or a thing for a purpose or a use. And so that is language which depicts being under the authority or the control of someone. And what the nations are here declaring is, we will not serve this God. We will not have him reign over us. We will not have him be our master. We will not be his subjects and his citizens. They do not want to be under God's control. So what do they do? They plot against him. Now, if you look at that word plot, BSV, it's actually the same word that was used back in Psalm 1 verse 2, translated meditate. And so uh, obviously there's a, a wide semantic range for that word, but this plotting that the nations do involves some thinking. It's thoughtful. It's not just like a, a quick emotional reaction against uh, Jesus Christ, but it's a thoughtful how do we take down his kingdom? How can we militate against him? And this plotting is literally fulfilled during Jesus' earthly ministry. And let me, uh, we're going to look at that just briefly, but I want to back that claim up that this plotting is literally fulfilled during Jesus' earthly ministry by uh, turning to Acts chapter 4, verse 24, and reading, uh, reading the passage. Here's the prayer of the disciples. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, a quote directly from Psalm 2. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now catch this. This, this gets pretty specific both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what, where does Psalm 2 fulfilled? How does it get to Christ? The New Testament makes it crystal clear what this psalm has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who is plotted against. And Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, everybody Everybody is indicated as having hated the Lord Jesus Christ and working against him. So uh, I want to kind of walk through uh, what that plotting looked like uh, because they plotted to try and remove Christ. And it really began, you could argue, with the Pharisees and they're trying to undo and cast off God's shackles and ruin his kingdom. Uh, they were always after the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're actually told in John eleven fifty three from that day on, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and they realized this is, he's no joke. Th this guy is actually living up to all of his claims. 
Therefore, we don't have to believe in him. No, we got to get rid of him. Okay, so from that day on, uh, they made plans to put him to death. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they were doing this all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. He was plotted against by Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. Remember that Thursday night? They're the people he first ran into along with the Sanhedrin. And they accused Jesus of blasphemy. They, they, they didn't want him to reign over them. And there's a really good reason why they would not want Jesus to reign over them. Why? Because they would lose their religious power. Because they were God in the lives of the Jews in Israel. They were the ones who called the shots. They did not want to give up that authority. Jesus was plotted against by Herod as well. Uh, when Jesus appeared before Herod, Herod was glad to see him. He wanted to see Jesus do a sign, like, hey, give me some great magic show. I'm a king. Dance for me. Let's see how good you can dance. Let's see what kind of magic you have going on. And Herod questioned Jesus for a while, but Jesus didn't answer him, one account says. And then the mockery began. And Herod's dressing him up. They're spitting on him, pulling out his beard. And Herod had a real good reason to plot against Jesus. Why? Because if Jesus is a king and Herod is a king, we now have a competition and Herod doesn't want to lose. So Herod plots against him as well. Then we got a reference to Pilate. He actually went to Pilate first, then to Herod, then back to Pilate before his crucifixion. But Pilate um, was interested in getting Jesus off his hands. Pilate wanted to wipe his hands clean of this guy, just wanted to remain indifferent to him until the crowd said this, John 19, 12. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Ooh. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The crowds forced Pilate to deal with Jesus' claim to be king. You want to let him go? This man says he's king. You let him go. You're now his friend. You're against Caesar. Pilate was already on short notice with Caesar. He had done some things historically that put him on Caesar's do not like list. And so as soon as they mention that, Pilate's thinking, what? If I don't do this right, I'm going to lose my reign over my little kingdom here. And so Pilate has a good, solid reason to do away with the Lord Jesus Christ and plot against him. And indeed, Pilate uh, did plot against him. In fact, we, we talk about crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pilate should have bowed down before the Lord Jesus and worship him and say, he's the king but he refused to. And in that, he evidenced his hate of Jesus. And then finally, he was plotted against by the peoples of Israel, the Gentiles, everybody out there. Remember, it was customary of Pilate to let one criminal go. And who eventually gets let go, Jesus or Barabbas? They let go, and I think it's Matthew, Matthew or Luke records that Barabbas was a notorious criminal. This is somebody well-known all around Jerusalem and the region for being a really wicked guy, Right? He's on everybody's hate list. His name's been in the paper. Uh, he's wearing an ankle bracelet. Whatever you want to say, everybody knows about, about Barabbas. And in one final plot against God and shot against his glory, the crowds actually picked this notorious criminal to go free rather than Jesus. And then they yell, just crucify him. Just get rid of this guy. He's just a worthless piece of trash in the cloak of skin. All these plots were written about or prophesied about a thousand years before they ever happened in Psalm 2. And what the apostles do when they read the psalm and look at the life of Jesus is they say, ah, we've got a direct fulfillment of this psalm in the life of Christ. Let me consider just 
two things before we move on to the calm, steady reign of the king. The whole world is hostile to God's reign over us. Every human being by nature and the world in general does not like God reigning over us at all. Never has and never will. It took place in the days of Jesus Christ that it was made very evident that the world is against Christ. It continues down all the way to this day that nobody likes God to reign over them among the nations. So I just want to make that clear. It shouldn't surprise us when we discover that nations and people by nature are against God's kingdom and want to squash it or want to treat it as one kingdom alongside all the other legitimate valid kingdoms as well. Uh, that should not surprise any believer at all. That's been the course of the world. It will continue to be the course of the world. The second thing is all human beings hate the king by nature unless we're born again. So I just want to remind us of this. Colossians 1.21, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now you've been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Romans 5, verses 6 and then 8, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So when we look at the world's hatred of Christ and his kingdom, we can all relate. We can all say, yeah, that used to be me. I had that same heart that was hateful toward God and his kingdom, and I want to join the nations, except God gave me the new birth. Now I'm on his team for his kingdom rather than opposed to it. So second, if you look at verses four through nine, we see the steady, calm reign of the king. So he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So notice first, just notice this, that God is laughing. So despite all the efforts of the world to undo God's reign, God is not phased by it at all. Now, just put this in context. If China, Russia, NATO, the European Union all turned against the United States and were trying to take down the country in which we live, we wouldn't, only a fool would laugh, right? <laughs> Any wise person would be like, uh-oh, we have a major problem on our hands. But you can take all the nations of the world and all their power, all their military might, all their scheming, all their wickedness, and you can try and take down God's kingdom. And it's such a fool's errand. They're so infinitely weak compared to God's infinite strength that the only thing there is for God to do is laugh about it. Now, he's not laughing at the rebellion. He doesn't find human sin and rebellion to be funny. He's laughing and portrayed as laughing anthropomorphically to get us to see that this is not a problem for God. In fact, if you look at the passage, I found it interesting that the passage does not say he who sits in the heavens plots as well, and he's taking counsel and thinking about how to counteract his opponents. And we might, we might think that that's what the psalmist would have said next. The nations are plotting. Well, it only makes sense that God's plotting. No, this is such a small issue to the Lord. Something that he can do with the might of his pinky finger, as it were, that he doesn't have to plot. He doesn't have to scheme, as it were. He's already got this figured out. He can just sit in heaven and laugh. That's how small the nations are before him. 
So God is calm and steady in his reign and in his purposes. He's not thwarted at all by what the nations are doing. And uh, Spurgeon kind of brought it home this way. I think this is uh, helpful. If the captain is assured of victory, it behooves the common soldier to be bravely hopeful. The battle is the Lord's, and since he is the Lord God omnipotent, uh, fear about the issue of the conflict is foolish and wicked. All events are in his hand, his hand who can dash whole worlds to dust or create them when it pleases him. What can stand against the almighty will? Who shall say unto the Lord, what are you doing? In this eternal all-sufficiency is our rest, and we may therefore cease from anxiety. Stand still, my weary brother, and see the salvation of God. Things are not as they seem. All is well when all looks ill. Uh, let me uh, unfold that just a, a, little, a little bit. If you take a look at verse 6, notice, uh, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's how this king, that's how God is going to deal with the nations. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Centuries later in Jerusalem, which is Mount Zion, God did this very thing. How did he establish his king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem? If you look at Psalm 2-7, he actually tells us, Psalm 2 verse 7, just one verse later, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now theologians go round and round on what that day that Jesus has begotten refers to. Is it talking about his eternal begottenness? That's strange language uh, to say that there's a day on which he's begotten. Is it talking about Jesus' incarnation? But we have it answered for us if you look over at uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 32, where Paul says this, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So what's the day that Jesus Christ has been begotten that's being referenced in Psalm 2? What's the day that God set Jesus on Mount Zion, his holy hill, Jerusalem? It's the day that God resurrected Jesus from the dead. That's when God declared to the nations and to all the kings, I'm the one who reigns. I'm the one who's done this, and I reign over everybody. So Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, all arrayed against God and against his anointed to try and squash him. And if you came to Jerusalem, let's say Friday night or Saturday during the day, it would have looked like they won. It would have looked like Psalm 2 wasn't going to happen. But when you show up Easter, let's say by noon, and words gotten out, all of a sudden at Jerusalem, we've got this king that's set on the hill that even death couldn't hold. That's God's way of saying, you guys can plot all you want, but all I'm going to do with your plotting is use it to serve me and my saving. You can do all the plotting you want. Satan can amass all of his wisdom from hell and all of his demons. Satan can move among Judas the, the wicked people in the world, all the nations can plot against God. And God doesn't go against them. He actually uses them. And as it were, says, great, these are your plans. I'm going to use that. I've already predestined this to happen. And you're going to serve my purposes. You think you're going against my kingdom? Actually, you're building my kingdom. Satan is building God's kingdom. And God made that so clear on resurrection 
Sunday. So why does God sit in heaven and laugh? Because the best effort that Satan and everyone allied with him could accomplish when all of hell's firepower had been unleashed, the best they accomplished was not just shooting themselves in their own foot, but actually accomplishing God's redemptive purposes. And now let me close with this. The wrath and refuge of the king. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why do these, why are these kings of the earth being warned? Well, they're being warned and God's, as it were, saying, take notice, uh, be wise about this. The best and the brightest just came against me and lost miserably. And I use them to serve my kingdom. So if you want to continue to work against my kingdom and try and thwart my plans, just be aware of this. It's not going to work. I've proven that I can overcome death in my son Jesus through the resurrection. I've proven that a judgment is going to come by the resurrection. So be wise. Take note of this. And I find it interesting that the address here is made to the kings. Now, if, if kings of the earth have to take notice of this Jesus Christ and have to deal with the consequences of refusing him, namely they will perish, what does that mean for everybody else? Well, if kings are threatened by this, then how much more is everybody else threatened by this, right? If kings of the earth who rule and don't, aren't threatened by anything. They're the ones in charge in their kingdoms. They're protected. If they have to be warned of this, and, and they're actually subject to the reigning of King Jesus, that means everybody is subject to this reign, and everybody is to be warned. I was drawn to a passage, Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, which I found to be fascinating and almost highlighted in this. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Did you catch how that pass, how the people were described who are saying fall on us? The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone. And then there's this small reference, slave and free. God is telling everybody who's in charge, who reigns, because it's so tempting when you're in charge or when you're on top of your game. Think professional athletes being above the law. Think people who have a lot of money being able to buy their way out of having to deal with the consequences of breaking the law. Think of people who today have tremendous athletic prowess, and on account of that, they can live like the devil in the world and their life goes swimmingly, and people say, come and work for me. Think about all the ways that has happened, is happening, will continue to happen. And God does what with all of those people who are, as it were, above the law, which in Jesus' day are the kings and the rulers, and in David's day, what does he do? He brings them right down onto the level with everyone else. Unless any of them try and wiggle their way out, he describes them in detail and at length. Kings of the earth, Okay, I'm not a king of the earth. Great ones, okay, well, I'm not a great one or a king. The generals, ooh, okay, well, I'm not a general, a great one, or the kings of the earth, and the rich and the powerful, <laughs> everyone. And all he does is reference everybody else, he says, enslave and free. 
In other words, there is nobody exempt from this. So kings of the earth, people who are exempt from a lot of pain and suffering in the nation in which you live because you're the one in charge and you're not going to suffer. Everyone else will suffer before you do. People in that status in society, be warned that there's coming a day when you will no longer be exempt. And if the kings aren't, aren't exempt, then none of the rest of us are exempt either. So what are the kings being warned about? This, kiss the sun. They're being commanded to kiss the sun. Now, what is it to kiss the sun? If you look through 1 Kings 19.18, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Kissing something is uh, to swear allegiance to it, as it were, or to worship it. Hosea 13.2, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. So again, false worship and idolatry is uh, called the kissing of these. And Albert Barnes, when commentator, uh, used this as a definition of kissing the sun. The meaning here is that they should express their allegiance to the Son of God or recognize him as the authorized king with suitable expressions of submission and allegiance that they should receive him as king and submit to his reign. So what does it mean to kiss the sun? I want to flush this out a little bit. I'm heavily indebted to Tim Keller's insights in his sermon on this passage uh, when he started bringing this home regarding uh, kissing the sun uh, and having God as our Lord. So it involves two things I want to look at. Kissing the sun involves submission to him and also allegiance to him. So uh, submission to God or to Jesus as king involves submission to who he is and how he reigns. Those two uh, subpoints. There are a lot of people in the world who think that they are on good terms with God because they don't take his name in vain. They, when, they, when they cuss, they don't uh, take God's name in vain that way. And they're trying as hard as they can to be a good person. And if you ask them, do you believe in God? They would say yes. In fact, I'm guessing if we go all around the world, we would discover, I don't know, three quarters, for sure half of the people in the world, I would think, would say yes, I believe in God. If you ask them to flush that out a little bit, who is this God that you believe in? We would discover something that is really telling and really revealing. Some people would say, hey, uh, God is a, a welcoming God. They might go to Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Or God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Or uh, God is forgiving, Ephesians 1. God is gracious and merciful, uh, Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Or they might say God is non-judgmental. Psalm 130, if you will, Lord, some mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Or God is inclusive. Hey, Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude, no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. They say that's who God is. And so I believe in God. Now, these passages and others are assembled in order for people to define God in a particular way that is acceptable to them. And they say, hey, I believe in this God. I submit to this God, to who he is. How can so many people claim to believe in God? Because they don't all believe in the true God revealed in the Bible. And that can be flushed out this way. Uh, I was reminded of the quote as came to mind from Voltaire. He's an 18th century French philosopher. He quipped this about how human beings have fashioned God into whom uh, we want him to be. If God created us in his own image, we have more than reciprocated. How can so many people say, I believe in God? because they believe in the God of their own making. 
We're making God in our image. That's why the world is filled with people who believe in God, but don't really. God made us like himself. We're returning the favor. We're making him like ourselves. And then we claim that we believe in him. But the Christian God does welcome all people unconditionally. That is true. So for people to say, hey, God's just an unconditional lover. He welcomes all people unconditionally. Absolutely. Only through Jesus' son. Every human being who does not come to him through Jesus Christ is excluded from heaven. And all of a sudden you start sifting through, do you believe in God? I don't believe in that God. Well, actually, that's all over the pages of Scripture. So now we've got a different God that we're believing in. And submission to this king, kissing the son involves, I submit to who he is as as a being, who he's revealed himself to be. And the Christian God is infinitely loving and merciful and gracious and also is a God who has wrath and will punish every single sin that's ever been committed. Every sin that's ever been committed will either be punished in Jesus and it has been punished already or will be punished by those who've committed them who don't believe in Jesus in hell forever. The God of the Bible forgives sins and does not mark the iniquities of all his children because our sins have been paid for in Christ. But for all who do not believe in Jesus, they are storing up wrath against themselves and God keeps track of every one of their sins and they will pay for every single one. Let me ask you this, I'm asking myself this as well. Which king have you bowed to and kissed? A king of our own making, a God of our own making, or the God who has revealed himself in the word, like it or not? Like what he's revealed or do not like it? Have we kissed him? Is he the one that we've made peace with? Is he the one that we've know and love and cherish? Because God doesn't say, hey, you believe in me, but you can discard part of my character and my being. He's revealed him's whole self in the Bible. And when we kiss the son, we're saying, I submit myself to all of you as you have revealed yourself to be. The things which are easy to take and also the hard edges, I submit myself to all of it. And also when we kiss the son, so we submit not just to who he is, but also to how he reigns. Now, there are those who have kissed the son. Those who have kissed the son are those who accept how God reigns in our lives. There are a lot of people who would submit to the Lord Jesus Christ if he would just do what they wanted him to do in their life. It's really easy. Lord, I will believe in you if I can get a guarantee from heaven that my life will go this path, that it will go this way. That when I'm 50, this is what it will look like. That when I'm 70, this is what it will look like. That when I'm 30, this is what my life will look like. Then I can submit to you, Lord. But the true evidence that we've kissed the son and submitted to his lordship is that no matter how our life goes, we are at peace with his reign over us in the world. People who have kissed the son as the king are people who are content with the reign of the son, Jesus Christ, all over the world and even in our lives. And then... The second big heading regarding kissing the son has to do not with submission, but allegiance. So to come under the reign of King Jesus means that he is preeminent in our lives and reigns supreme. He's not second fiddle, but first. There are a lot of people, if you ask them, who is, do you believe in God? Yes. Is he number one in your life? Well, he's on the list. He's one among many of my priorities. Uh, He gets an hour or two on a Sunday from me every now and then. Maybe he gets an hour or two from me every week, uh, every single week. So I'm I'm actually doing pretty good. But Jesus Christ said, if you're going to follow me, 
if you're going to kiss me, if you're going to submit to me and be allied with me, then your relationships with your spouse, your father, your mother, your best of friends are going to look like hate by comparison when you compare your love for me with your love for them. That's how much of a number one, or God says this, if you've kissed the son, he will be number one in your life and there will be a massive gap between number one and number two. And down here on numbers two through 100, they'll all be pretty close sandwiched together when you compare them with the gap between number two and number one. So those who have kissed the son have said in effect, Lord Jesus, you have my full allegiance. I love no other master. I have no other kings or rulers in my life. You alone are the one I worship and delight in. That's what it looks like to kiss the son. If you notice the king's wrath in verse 12, you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. All who do not believe in Jesus and submit to his reign will perish. There's a reference to quickly kindled, which some commentators have pointed out. It's likely a reference to time. So his wrath is not, not like God is impatient in his wrath, but that his wrath will be poured out and people who reject him will perish soon, very soon. It's not going to take forever. It will happen soon enough. And for those who have kissed the son, uh, the king is now a refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is the reigning king as the one who alone can save us, as the one who reigns over all the nations of the earth. He is now not someone we fear and are scared of and judged by, but he is someone that we take refuge in. So we no longer receive from him wrath for our sins, but refuge from our sins and refuge from God's wrath on the last day. Let me just conclude this way. For any who might not believe, I just urge you to take refuge in Jesus Christ. The great day of wrath is coming. You will perish in that day if you don't take refuge in him. It's just really straightforward. All of us have sinned. God's holy. He's just. He's loving. Absolutely. He provided a way to have our sins paid for. He's also just, which is why we need a way to have our sins paid for. If it wasn't just, we don't need Jesus. God can just cancel the debt and call it good. We've all sinned. We're all going to pay for our sins or have someone else pay for them for us. Everybody who believes in Jesus has had their sins paid for. If you stand outside of Christ, you can do it. You can absolutely refuse to believe in Jesus. That is 100% your choice. But just know and be warned, like the kings are warned, like presidents and monarchs are warned, like people who reign over kingdoms are warned, so every citizen is warned, that if you take that road, you will perish. And you might think a military is strong, you might think some people are really strong and could crush you, but you haven't seen anything like the wrath of a holy, infinite God that's coming for you if you're outside of Christ to make you pay for all your sins and it will never end. So I urge you to take refuge in Jesus Christ. And for believers, the nations will continue raging and plotting. We should expect that. In the midst of the raging and the plotting, the most secure place to be in all the world is in Jesus Christ. For in him we have a refuge, not from the wrath of nations. We'll face the wrath of nations. We may be subject to them. We may be killed physically by the wrath of nations. But in Jesus, we have a refuge from the wrath of the true king, the one who can destroy not just body, but body and soul and hell. So when nations flare up and things go south, 
we can take a lot of comfort knowing that we have a refuge in the true King Jesus from God's wrath. Let's pray.